0: Kia ora Wellington and welcome to B-Side Stories.
1: Hi Wellington.
0: You are listening to Wellington Access Radio on 106.1 FM and this is B-Side Stories, the stories about the people that make Wellington tick and I can tell you already we've got a time
1: ticking Wellingtonian in the studio tonight. My name is Perrine, I'm one of your hosts tonight. And I'm Ruth, your other host. So tell us who's joining us tonight, Ruth. Mm -hmm. Well, everybody, thanks for joining in. I hope we're going to warm you up this evening. Now, would you be alarmed if I said, there is a man down our street and in his shed there are bones, multitudes of bones hanging from the ceiling, stacked on shelves and hidden in the shady recess of his garden? Another shed with more bones and tanks crawling with thousands of flesh-eating beetles. There's a skull in the tank, bloody flesh being devoured. Would you be alarmed? Fear not, the bones are not human and none of our neighbours have been disappearing. The bones are the work of George Holly. George is Skulls Down Under. And he not only provides skulls and skeletons of New Zealand fish, birds and vertebrae, but also does custom bone cleaning, degreasing, bleaching, repair and reconstruction of animal skulls and skeletons. It is a fascinating subject and it's my pleasure to have George here today. Welcome, George. Thank you. George, tell us about who you do all this for and why. Sorry, who? Who do you do all this work for and why do you do it for them? Well,
2: I do it for them, not for them, but for myself. It's basically money. That's the first object. And who do I do it for? There's a whole variety of people I do it for, whether it's for you know institutions, such as museums, such as the big uh, companies way downtown, big government departments, museums, and individuals as well. So there's a whole variety of people out there wanting this sort of stuff.
1: Why? Why? What do they want it for?
2: they lunatics, that's why. Who wants to collect bones? But people do. People have all sorts of interests, whether, you know, be it a stamp collecting or whatever. And um, bones are another thing which you can collect, and skulls, and people do these sorts of things. And why they do it? Well, because it shows another dimension of the creatures which, you know, which people are dealing with. Most people think about taxidermy. And that is the complete animal. But that is all very well. and I think it's very nice. as an art form, but it doesn't tell me how the creature functions. And the thing which has always struck me as a, a youngster, and I mean when I was a youngster, and this is both during the Second World War and the years that followed, and um, actually collecting bones and trying to put them together to try to you know, articulate these creatures. But being a youngster at that time... And uh, no resources, Uh, it was not, I would say, a profound uh, success, neither was there a profound success, you know, with my parents either, they showed me the door. Um, But again, following the uh, Second World War, the museums opened, uh, and uh, we were able to, we, I, able to go downtown. I think I used to get sixpence a week pocket money, so threepence downtown and threepence back up, and that gave me the afternoon down at the museums, of which i spent a considerable number of years going back and forth to these museums, namely the Museum at Cardiff. And they had a very large osteological collection, and what I mean by that, they had on display, static displays of all sorts of creatures, and what struck me, even as a youngster then of seven and eight, and that was the similarity between all of these creatures. Now I just go from one end to the other and think, well, that's got ribs there and that's got ribs there and that's got a tail there, etc., etc. And there's a sense of familiarity, a sense of a source. Um, they've come from one source. And I'm not quite sure what clicked in my mind about that at the time. I thought, these, you, know, you know, these bones put together represent the internal structure of a creature, and they're much more interesting than just the plain creature. You not only see these other creatures which have been to him outside in the wild, but now you've got them in museums. I don't see any point. What makes them go? What holds them together? What, you know, sort of, what possesses them you know, to be able to hold their whole body frame together? The very foundation to their body, to their soul, etc., and that's what struck me as a youngster, and it's been with me ever since. Um,
1: From talking to you, you obviously love bones. Why do you love bones? Only if they're made into soup, as well. Yeah, soup is good. (laughs) So, what? Why do you love bones? Well, again, I come back
2: to this business of. To me, while looking at them in the museum, and I, I and I shall repeat myself here again, that the museums which we had then had static displays, hundreds of static displays, of which you could go down and spend your afternoon sitting down and observing these things, which is more than what we have here at uh, you know, as of the present moment. And so you're able to actually sit and observe and study the structure of each and every one of these creatures. And it's it's just sort of drilled into my mind this sense of everything must have a common ancestry. And it's a the- beautiful, uh, you know, skeletons, you know, articulated skeletons of birds and fish are a wonderful piece of, ar- of biological architecture to me. That's the way that I see them. I don't see them as a collection of bones. I see them as a piece of biological architecture, which are, of which have all derived from. What is to my mind and what was to my mind then as a great youngster, they've all come from one source. Everything has developed from one line and has diversified out throughout the many millions of years they've been upon this earth and have had a chance to develop and and to diversify.
1: And I've seen some of your reconstructions or some pictures and they, they are a work of art, aren't they? So is that one of the reasons why people come to you? Because they want to display it as a like a work of art? No. No?
2: No, I don't think so. Um, they want them uh, for practical purposes. I've only known of two people who have come to me and talked about them um, in terms of a work of art.
1: So what are some of the practical purposes? Like you mentioned when we chatted earlier, uh, research, training. What are some of those reasons that they want them for? How do they use them?
2: Well, I suppose they use them in terms of, um, of, uh, of uh, studying or displaying the kinetics of, of movement of, of either the legs or the body or the wings or the fins. That shows you the basic structures upon which each and every bone is so intricately interconnected in order to, in order to mobilize the creature, in order for it to go forward or backwards or sideways, etc., and these bones show every detail about this, about how they're interconnected. And that is the art to me. That's the way that I
1: see them. So tell me about some of the jobs that you get, and then what is the process that you have to go through with, for example, a collection of bones or a bone?
2: Well, in the past I've had, um, from, um, from Codfish Island, the uh, kakapo, I've had penguins as well brought up. Now what happens is that, um, that these creatures die out in the field and the people concerned or concerned about these projects want a skeleton of the creature, but all they've got is on the ground is a pile of bones which have been there maybe for years and been disturbed as in the case of the kakapo, as in case of uh, of the blue-eyed penguin penguin project way down in um, um, you know Dunedin. They give me a box of bones and they've asked me, can you reconstruct? My response to that is, you know, I can construct, but I can only construct with what you have provided with me. You're not going to get a perfect model by any state. And uh, not infrequently, I've, I have got back to the people and say, will you go out into the field again and re-examine the position of the original um, position and dig a little deeper, and spread out a little further, and see what else you can find. Because there are a number of quite um quite intricate and quite um uh, salient bones which are missing from here. They must be somewhere, because the rats will come and eat them and drag a bit off here and a bit off there. So spread your search, and they have done this, and um, this has resulted in in uh, in uh, in. Say about a ninety um, you percent, know, complete collection of a box of bones, you know, and and therefore, first off is, then identify the bones. Secondly, lay out the bones, see what, see what's missing, and see what you could maybe insert, you know, because I do have a large collection of all sorts of bones, uh, small bones, big bones, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and I will call upon that collection. You know to if you know to if necessary, and with permission of the people who are wanting the job done to have maybe some bones inserted or do we leave spaces and that's the sort of road we then go down and then the reconstruction and sending pictures back and forth between myself and the appropriate institutions or collectors to see whether they want anything else done or or a particular sort of stance they want the the bird or, or the penguin or such like. And even then, um, I have been pulled up in terms of the penguin because I've had to make use of the of the research material down at the uh, local annual museum. Go down there, have a look, see it, and uh, see what they've got. And uh, that's been very helpful. Um, and so, you know, and so there's quite a bit of a research goes into these uh, projects, especially on these, as I say, such things as the kakapo and the blue penguin, and other things which I've done. I think from the small to the big, I've come up from, from you know hummingbirds to alligators as well. Of, uh, quite recent, an alligator for the Auckland uh, Museum. You know.
1: I thought you mainly dealt with New Zealand. We don't have alligators in New Zealand, do we? Yes. We do. Yes. Say something about that. That's news.
2: Well, they have them up in the uh, zoo,
1: up in... Um, oh. Up in... <laughs> I just forgot Charles to mention, <laughs> listeners, George is a bit of a character. But, George, you have to do some certain things to the bones, don't you, before you reconstruct it, or you can get all kinds of things going wrong. Can you tell the listeners about how you have to treat the bones? and?
2: OK, well, let's just take... Um, uh, say the case of uh, the alligator a very large alligator came into my possession i don't know by the was not
1: a new zealand alligator everybody (laughs) i'm just saying
2: (laughs) and um and and so i get this plonked upon my table and i have to go forth with you know so first of all you have to skin and skinning an alligator is quite a difficult uh, thing, and so the only way I could find out how to do it, I actually went onto the net then, you know, to have a look at how the Americans skinned their alligators, which was quite uh, educational. Anyway, skin them out, and then take as much flesh off of them as you possibly can, and then you then start to divide them up into numbers of portions. You then cut the head off, cut the tail off, and you know, take out the limbs, etc., and store them away. And then... Again, engage in defleshing them as much as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Have defleshed them as much as you possibly can. You then get, a, you know, quite a bit of a flesh left upon them in minute quantities, uh, which also contains blood. And so the next thing you have to do then is to wash the skeleton or the bones. This washes the blood out because the blood contains, you know, iron as a as in a, you know hemoglobin. And if you leave that on. And you try to go forward, it'll stain the bones. So you have to wash them for three or four days. Haven't washed them, you then dry them.
1: Are you just washing them in water? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: You know, do about two or three changes over a five day period. And that seems to remove all the blood from the tissue upon the skeleton. After that, then you dry it, and you dry it as hard as a brick, and then you feed it to the beetles.
1: Tell us about the beetles.
2: Oh, you seem rather fascinated.
1: I love the beetles. I've seen the beetles.
2: Oh. Um, well, they're called uh, Domestus meculatus, and um, I acquired, probably about uh, 20 years ago, um, uh, initially six of them from over in uh, the Wire Rapper, where I used to go um, uh, rabbit hunting. I used to take my daughter out rabbit hunting over weekends, and um, that's where I discovered them, over on the east coast of the Wire Waiarapa. So I had six of them, and I got them re-identified at the um, museum, but they, uh, but they gave me the great pleasure of polishing them off by putting them into the deep freeze, which wasn't, which wasn't to make me happy. So I then spent a, probably about another twelve months, and I found I think it's either seven or eleven. I can't recall with any clarity of mind. And from there, I built up colonies where I have tens of thousands now, and uh, and uh, simply they uh, they they you know do the job then of of uh, taking the flesh off.
1: Is there any, ever any problem with you accidentally leaving your hand in the tank for too long?
2: Well, you can put your hand in there for a time, and um, probably you'll answer the question yourself. <laughs> I give serious doubt to that because um, because are they are they are they not keen on fresh flesh? Um, because uh, because that leads to at least two sets of diseases with them. One is a fungal, and the other is a, a dysenteric effect upon them. Are they like to eat you know hard, dry flesh? That's their emotion. Other than that, if you feed them moist or wet stuff you'll be losing your colonies fairly you know, fairly rapidly.
1: There's an interesting story, isn't there, about how you think these actually originally came into New Zealand?
2: Oh, yes, oh, yeah. Well, that goes back probably to the time of, um, of uh, the uh, Chinese who came into Otago to the goldfields from the uh, west coast of America. And the Chinese, uh, when they came here, used to get on board boats, but they had to provide their own bedding. And they would... Um, Make what we would refer to as these palliasses, or these are very long sacks, which would make a, 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 the equivalent of a single bed mattress, and they would then pack it with dry grass, uh, which came from out of the California desert, and that's where the beetles have originated from. So they came from there, on down, you know, on down with the Chinese, and as soon as they arrived, of course, they would get their palayas and shake them out, so they introduced them into this country. And that was way down south, but they have since made their way way up country here. In, and that is in the drier parts of, of New Zealand. You won't find them in the, say, down on the west coast of the South Island, but you will find them in drier parts, maybe over on the east coast of uh, the Wairapa, and maybe down at Otago during the um, summer when they're more active. But in winter, they'll just disappear into the ground.
1: And uh, so our creature, I've forgotten if he's a crocodile or an alligator. Alligator. An alligator. So our alligator has been skinned, deep-fleshed, chopped up, dried out, washed, dried out, and he's in the tank with the beetles.
2: In Yes, in with the beetles in, And let them go for it.
1: How long um, is he going to be in the tank with the beetles for?
2: Well, that depends upon the population. And... Um, and if I was such a project, I would, I would rack uh, the numbers up by feeding them. And I'll feed them, you know, sort of you know, dog biscuits or any other sorts of scrap in order to build up populations, in order to get the job done as quickly as possible. But also then, I, what I do with the beetles, I also sieve them. I grade them into the larger, medium and smaller. And I reject the smaller and the medium. Because otherwise they can get between bone joints. And if you get that, then you get a collapse of the skeleton. And so we, um, and so we grade them. We, I uh, grade them into the larger portion and put them into a tank with the larger beetles or the larger larval of the beetle. Sorry, and um, and uh, they'll do their job of consuming any dry flesh upon that. Having said that, then you can do that. You can then put them into a degreasing situation because bones. Yeah, because bones you know, contain a lot of fats and wax and well, all we,
1: we will come to the degreasing thing next. We are going to go to a song. George has picked a song. It's Queen, I Want to Break Free. George, why do you like this song? <laughs>
2: um, two levels. One, it reminds me of uh, my former life. <laughs> and two, it's almost like having an injection of morphine into the brain. Because... Um, because um, I have to sit down at the computer, and there's one thing I totally dislike, is sitting down at the computer and working and writing, but I have to do it. And so what I do, I just put on Freddie Mercury, and I want to be free, and I just turn it up, and my mind goes blank, and I can work. I well, can't work otherwise. Uh, yeah.
1: le- let's hear Freddie Mercury, and when it finishes, your mind's not allowed to be blank anymore. Oh, I see. We're going to carry on. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Wellington Access Radio, 106.1 FM. I'm Ruth, and we are B-Side Stories, stories about people that make Wellington tick or just jolly interesting, such as my guest today, George Holly. Uh, And that was his pick of a song. He loves to listen to it when he's working, which, of course, is custom bone cleaning, degreasing, bleaching, repair and reconstruction of animal skulls and skeletons. So he's been telling us the story of this uh, alligator and it's had a whole bunch of stuff done to it, and it's in the tank with the beetles. Now, we just need to correct a little misunderstanding that we had. It's not the adult beetles that actually do the munching to get all this flesh off the bones, is it, George? Correct. So what happens?
2: Well, you know, um, uh, these beetles are in two forms, both the adult and the juvenile. The adult is as the beetle. Uh, The juvenile form is almost looking like a, a caterpillar. And it goes through five stages of uh, development. And what I mean to say development, that's in terms of growth. It's the same as you, as a youngster, you grow up and you grow out of your clothes. And so you cast them aside and get a new set. And so it'd be with, uh, with the uh, larval of this particular beetle. And so you get um, you know, five quite distinct sizes of, uh, of, uh, of the larval of the beetle. And they're the ones that actually do the eating. Uh, the adult form they do nothing else but fornicate and produce um, you know lots of and lots of eggs and lots and lots of um, baby ones that's their job Tough and life. after they've done that they keel over and die <laughs> so much for them
1: so our our alligator has had all the uh, flesh munched off his bones by the the la- larvae he's going to get degreased now isn't he what happens Yes, yeah.
2: okay well bones contain you know quite a considerable amount uh, uh, quantity of fats, oils and waxes, but also at the actual core of all the bones that are marrow as well. And um, and so if they're not processed, namely not degreased properly, what you then get is um, uh, is the, the oils and uh, is the oils and waxes and fats basically then start to leach out over a period of time onto the surface. And this produces both a browning effect or patching of browning and can also you know produce a fungal. Or a fungus, or sort of fungi, effect upon them as well, as well as a quite unpleasant odor about them. So, so as a professional in this game, um, I have to ensure that you know clients receiving materials from me are not subject to this matter. And so, I put them through a degreasing plant. And so, the bones go into this degreasing plant, of which there's, at the base of the plant, there's solvent. The solvent is heated; it raises up towards the ceiling of the plant, of which are large cooling coils, and the uh, vapor condenses on on the cooling coil, then drops back down onto the bones, and so you can't, so you have a constant rain of fresh solvent, washing the bones and soaking through, and just, and just uh, dissolving out all the fats, waxes, and oils. Having done that, then you've got fairly clean bones. The next stage you go on from there, is having then dried dried that process out, you then put them into a a solution of uh, peroxide and ammonia. And that brings them up beautifully white. And so you end up with a beautiful white bone that's odourless, no problems. And you can also then start using glue to put them back together. Again, if you don't degrease them, you can't glue them together. It's yeah. it's just not possible. At least that's my experience. And so I go through this process.
1: And you've some interesting uh, tales of some examples of what happens when the degreasing's not done properly.
2: Well, we come back to the uh, museum, I'm afraid, back to De Papa. And um, we also then come back to a time when I was up at um, employed up at, uh, up at the Varsity there. And at uh, one stage, the Department approached um, the mycology or the uh, mycologists up there. The mycologists are people who deal in fungi and funguses, etc. Because they had a skull, a whale skull. And inside there were some mushrooms and some funguses and they wondered what the hell was going on. Um, so I don't know what happened to them after that. But also, um, there's, been, um, there's been cases again. Of and even more recently, are them complaining or sort of trying to resolve this issue, and I think the latest, uh, you know, issue has been with um, some bones and skulls which they've had there, and now they're using a process of using UV light and alcohol, you know, to try to do this. But also, they have another large problem which goes back a large number of years. Can you remember Carla the elephant at the zoo? Uh, maybe it's before your time. Oh,
1: it might have been. <laughs>
2: But anyway, Carla passed away, and uh, and the net result is that, um, is that they uh, you know took all these scones and buried it, and then some time later dug it up and then started boiling parts off it. Then, having done that, they were happy with that, and they then put it together, and then it went on display up at uh Palmerston North museum, and it was um, hastily returned because the absolute odor again. Not The bones are not being processed mm. properly. Um,
1: so boiling is just simply not an No, it just, it's just, just
2: doesn't work. It's, it's a just,
1: really scientific process, isn't it? Yeah.
2: Well, as far as I'm concerned, yes. But I think they've been rather stuck in the past in terms of what um, both uh, taxidermists and osteologists have done. And they haven't really moved on. So, but, you know, they're not perfect. Even Farlap's not perfect, I I note there's you no know, bones missing off that. There's two bones missing there. And, um, you know, there's supposed to be experts down there.
1: So how did you gain your expertise? What's your background?
2: My background? Well, my background is not in this, really. Um, it really comes back to the time when I was a wee-wee lad and, uh, you know, going to the museum at Cardiff, being able to sit in the museum all the Sunday afternoons and go from one thing, looking at all these skeletons... And being absolutely fascinated and wanting to own them. Of course, you can't buy those sorts of things. So, anyway, that was put on the bye-bye. And uh, my education then went into organic chemistry, um, which I've done quite well at. And uh, then I came to New Zealand, i had done biochemistry. But they also wanted me, when they employed me from the UK, to be an entomologist as well. So I took to being an entomologist, and they wanted all sorts of insects. And while I was doing that, I was collecting all sorts, and I also collected the beetles as well, you know, as part of the process. But uh, I'd done that besides my main job, and some time later they employed somebody else out of the UK, and all that disappeared. So I have a background in entomology, I have a damn good background in organic chemistry, I have a damn good background in biochemistry and understanding of bones and structures and the chemical compositions of everything and how we, you know... and how we basically function in terms of studying actual biology. I've done biology one, but never osteology. It's just not been available here, and so in terms of me being called an osteologist, which I think is quite flattering, it's not very true, because even if anybody had watched a program last night upon, um, you know, upon the TV about uh, about archaeologists and osteologists getting together to determine fish bones, whether they came from the Red Sea or from the Mediterranean. So yeah. You know, um if ever I need specialized information I can go down to the museum and look through their collection. Although so, when I wanted to look at a salmon they didn't have one down there.
1: So so our, our alligator now is okay. all his bones are cleaned, been degreased, all beautiful and white. What will you do next?
2: Put them together. <laughs> mm-hmm. now, so
1: how long would a project like this take, and and what would someone expect to pay for it?
2: I don't want to discuss money. I think that's um, right. I think that's you know, out of the question. I think that's unethical. So but I'm I mean, not it's not just it.
1: like it's not just like oh, it's 50, a fifty dollar thing, is it? Oh,
2: hems preserve snow. No, because <laughs> the thousands. A, that that's yeah. right. Because yeah, yeah.
1: there's a lot of time. So, yeah. what? Tell us about the next stage of. of well, the this next
2: stage then is to put all these bones together, and uh, that involves um are the drilling of the bones and putting pins in. You know, and you're no different to what you see sometimes in um in, in uh, these um T V programs of uh surgeons sort of putting broken bones back there and they're hammering away these great stainless steel rods, you know, into the leg and then putting the leg together, you know. To a degree it's same self thing, you yeah. know. And um and that's the way that the um uh, the alligator was put together. A lot of pins, a lot of wire, and a lot of um, a, a lot of arrow dot, in fact.
1: Mm-hmm. How you know, many hours do you think it would have taken you? Oh,
2: if you could just sit down, it'd probably take about um, 72, maybe 100 hours, mm-hmm. something, something to that effect, of just doing that part, you know. And I think this is what people just don't realise what sort of times, because I've been asked to do other projects, and you put a quote in, and they just fall over laughing, you know. Um, they just don't understand how much time, yeah. People seem to have a concept about bones and skeletons and scars. It's something which you just go and pick up out of the paddock and that's <laughs> and that's been quite a common response, you know, from people when they come to me and say, Well, I can pick it up from the paddock, so it's all right, off you go. Go and pick it up from the paddock, goodbye. And so, yeah, you know, if um you know, if they don't appreciate it then they really don't want it.
1: So once you've put our alligator all back together what next? What happens to him then?
2: Well, he then gets crated up, and so we have to build a crate, special crates for them, so they don't rattle around inside, and then send them down to the couriers then, and get them sent, uh, you know, sent up to Auckland, as is as has been the case of uh, the alligator as well. So you know, it's fairly straightforward. You know, I don't have any problem. Are with Are
1: there any legal restrictions or requirements that you have to adhere to? Within New Zealand for, or, or in between New Zealand and overseas?
2: Yes, almost certainly so. Um, certainly within here and within New Zealand. People, you know, contact me. They say, I've got this albatross or I've got this or I've got the gannet, etc. Well, I can't do it. Not unless you're an institution which has a permit to, uh, uh, to actually own or possess or to store that. And that has to be passed on to me. You know, otherwise, you know, you don't get things done. Uh, people would say, well, I found it on the beach. And I said, yes, well, that may well be so, but I still can't touch it unless you've got permission to own it, and unless you get written permission from the Department of Conservation or whatever to have it on my premises.
1: Really? Why is that? So well, I, I can't just, if I find one on the beach, I can't just take it home and, well, I guess it would smell.
2: <laughs> hmm. Well, you know, what they're then concerned about is the uh, commercialisation, and that's if one person does it, and says, I found it on the beach, that may well be a valid point and may well be true. But then somebody else then wants to, you know, seize what you're doing, and they want to repeat that exercise, so they go out and they kill a maybe a seal and chop its head off and say, I found it on the beach. Well, you know, that has to be stopped, and uh, that is one way of stopping it. You know, you you just don't carry these items, and you just don't sell them. And in terms of the overseas, there is... a um, there's a, uh, there's a trade in items. But again, you have to be fully aware of what you're entitled to send out and what you're entitled not to send out and the restrictions in the other countries. And you have to determine that before you start exporting anyway.
1: So the day that I discovered George Everybody, I was walking down the street with my daughter and there was his open garage with skulls hanging from the ceiling and bones lined up. We were very fascinated. Do many people stop to chat, George?
2: Yes, at that stage, um, I found it quite interesting the number of people who did stop, because at the time I was actually working upon my garage, putting up new guttering, and <clears throat> what I noted that's um, the numbers of people who were interested, but also the number of people who, you know, threw up in—sorry, well, that's a rather bad expression—but people rather put their arms up in dismay about this, you know, they just couldn't take it. Um which is not uncommon and in fact, you know, I've seen it and sadly so, I you know with people, you know, coming past with their children and literally dragging their children on. The children want to stop and look and talk about this, but the parents don't want it. And so what you're doing or what they're doing is actually denying their children an opportunity to see another part of life or another part of what life is all about. And you know, sort of quite frequently during that time I was given stuff to children, you know, to children and whose parents wanted to stop and you know talk. It just gives them another interest, another insight, you know, to what's available outside there in terms of life and education and interest. Life's not all about uh, you know computers and iPods and iPads. There's another side you know, side of life because um, I think it's so sad that we have a museum here but that we have a museum here and I can't go down there and sit and look at things. It's like a fun fair to me, as it reminds me of.
1: So um, if someone wants to make use of your services, how do they find you?
2: Well, I have a website, um, which is basically basically goes under skullsdownunder.co.nz. They can contact me that way. Um, but I'm also finding that, uh, that word's getting around lately as well. About this um, lunatic who lives up in Brooklyn.
1: I can vouch for that, everyone.
2: What, the lunatic? (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) George, what would you do if someone requested that uh, you did their whole skeleton when they die?
2: Uh, I would reject it.
1: Uh, Do you often have to turn down people? Yes, I do. What are some of the reasons?
2: Why I turn it down?
1: Or why, why you turn people down?
2: Well, people have uh, people have you know, written to me and and contacted me and implored me to do the job but I won't do it and that's if people are going into hospital and they haven't part of their leg removed or their hand removed and they want to preserve it they want to keep it at home and I can't cross that ethical uh, uh, you know uh, line of doing a human you know human materials I I just cannot do it. I don't know whether it actually requires a permit, you know, to be able to do this sort of thing because I haven't inquired about it because I've just said, no, there are, you know, there is a line I do draw between this. And that's, you know, it's your foot, it's your leg, you know. Sorry, it doesn't matter how much you want to pay me, I'm not going to do the job. I just, I just, um, I don't think I'm squeamish by any sense of the imagination, but there's some moral and ethical lines which I just can't cross or won't cross, and that's one of them.
1: Right. Well, George, it's been a great pleasure having you in the studio today. So if any of you out there have a bone that you need uh, prepared or or a skeleton put back together, skulls down under, George Holly is your man. Thanks very much, George, for coming in today. That's okay. It's been fascinating.
0: Thank you, George, and... um, fascinating to hear the life of or the lifespan of the alligator skeleton
2: he's up in Auckland we'll visit him
0: um, he's smiling <laughs> giving a wink
2: I don't think